Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes David Leaf to discuss Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys, and the California myth. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by David Leaf, the author of God Only Knows, the story of Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys, and the California myth. David, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here with you guys. Love talking about music, and you guys know music. That we do, or we try. We're learning every day. And this is a book that's pretty dear to my heart. This is the first Beach Boys book I read, I think, in middle school. And I kind of have a rule on the show of avoiding talking to musicians and people that are kind of too close to the fire. And you're actually on the line here because this book, which came out in 1978, very pioneering book, one of the first to establish, you know, Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys as, as a matter for serious critical study. And then from there, you kind of got entangled in the story over the next 40 years. That's a, Entangled is a good word to use. Uh, you know, I was a know-it-all journalist on a mission when I wrote the, the book back in, in 77, 78. I went to school in Washington, D.C. during the anti-war movement, during the Nixon administration, uh, studied journalism, learned that Edward R. Murrow, uh, the, the legendary CBS radio and television broadcaster, had found a way to tell stories that could change the world. And I wanted to change the world. Um, when I became obsessed with Brian Wilson and Smile, uh, I kind of took it upon myself as a mission to move to California and write this book. And um, it was in the course of writing this book that I I began to meet um, people who were close to Brian and indeed uh, became enmeshed in his life uh, all these years, uh, you know, 44 years later. And the the new edition has just come out. The book's been out of print for a little while, and it's got multiple updates. You did an update in the mid-'80s and then um, an, another update recently, and the changes have been dramatic. I mean, this is a story with essentially a happy ending. Brian Wilson has recovered his functionality. Um, he's been performing live for two decades now which is something people never thought would happen in the 1970s when you first wrote the book. Or people were talking about it would happen, but a lot of people on the inside were very doubtful that Brian would ever recover fully enough to perform again. And then he performed Pet Sounds Live with the incredible band he assembled around the, the band, The Wonderments, and then finished his unfinished masterpiece, Smile, which was kind of your purpose. And one of the things you hoped to accomplish when you started writing the book was to help get the smile tapes out of the vaults into the public. Did you ever imagine that someday you would see Brian Wilson performing that album in Toto? Oh, I didn't imagine any of those things would actually happen. I was just a, a naive kid dreamer. And, and uh, you know, the, the last update, which came out in 85. So the first book was in 78 and, and, and between the first edition of the book and that the short update in 85 uh, I, I thought brian was going to die so all the things that happened uh, his his entire solo career the touring years the the the, the pet sounds tour the the all-star tribute to brian wilson the, the, the films i worked on with him uh, the don was documentary and, and my own beautiful dreamer the brian wilson presents smile it, it was. It wasn't even on. It was like saying, "We're going to go to Mars," in 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 the year eighteen hundred. And people would look and say, "What do you mean you're going to go to Mars? What's Mars?" 
I mean, it's just none of it made any sense. So, so when I was in college and became obsessed with the subject and, and sort of formulated this idea, I'm going to move to California, write a book about Brian Wilson, become his friend and help him finish Smile, I might as well have been saying, you know what, I'm class president and one day I'm going to be president of the United States. That's how insane an idea it was. And yet it happened. So, you know, it's it's like you're a young Barack Obama or George W. Bush and, and <laughs> speaking prophetically. But tell us how, how were the Beach Boys perceived in the mid-70s when you started writing the book? They'd already kind of had their comeback with the Endless Summer album. But were, was Brian Wilson seen as a major artist at that point in time? Brian Wilson was a mystery in, in, in the mid-70s. When, when I first became obsessed in 71, um, it was in, in two, there were two songs that, that, that drove me. One was the Surf subtitle song. That album came out in the fall of 71. And it was like, oh, my God, this music is uh, from Smile is as great as they're saying. I want to hear this whole album. So there was a selfish part of this as well. I wanted to hear Smile. The, the song that I think drove me even more was Till I Die, this heartbreaking ballad. On, on on the Surf's Up album, which told me two things. One, that this guy had basically given up on life. And two, all of his talents as a, a writer, arranger, vocal arranger, and producer were intact because it was as beautiful a record as anything he'd ever done. And so I was confident he could do it uh, with the confidence of youth. Um, but in, in when I moved to California in 75, all people knew about Brian Wilson was apparently he was in his room. That That's pretty much what you knew. You, nobody saw him anywhere. He wasn't on tour with the Beach Boys. The Beach Boys had had this, this giant comeback, first creatively with the Sunflower Surf's Up era, and then in 74 when, when Capitol Records released their umpteenth greatest hits compilation endless summer which went to number one and suddenly the beach boys were hot and because of uh, jim gersio james william gersio as, as he was known who was the, the mastermind behind chicago he you know the beach boys went out to caribou studios in colorado he the beach boys uh, at least carl wilson was on uh, elton john's don't let the sun go down on me the beach boys sang on chicago's wishing you were here uh jim gersio is the one who arranged for the beach boys chicago tour and that really introduced them to a to a new generation as a touring act as a hit making machine what you know nowadays they call them legacy acts but people were still waiting for a great Beach Boys album. They were still waiting for Brian Wilson to come back. And in 1976, there was this ill-fated Brian is back campaign was launched. And Brian was not back. And it was it was a disaster. Yeah, that's my first memory of Brian Wilson, actually, was seeing that live TV special that Lord Michaels produced. I was a big Saturday Night Live fan because I got to stay up late on Saturdays with my older brothers and sister. And seeing John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd dragging Brian Wilson out of bed into into the surf disturbed me at the time. I was seven or eight years old, had no idea who this was. I think I was vaguely familiar with Surf and Safari and some of the other hits. And seeing that on live TV really freaked me out. I was like, why are they bothering this poor man? And, you know, why is the guy that's obviously in distress like this on TV? Um, you know, and well, it was, that's a, that's a pretty deep um, reaction for, for a seven or eight year old. I had that same reaction in 1971 when I read the Rolling Stone article that Tom Nolan wrote, which is this, this man is ill. Why are they using him to promote an album? And it really, it really pissed me off. Now, that was part of what, you know, what, what drove me to, to do the book was like, let this man be. When he's ready to make music, he'll make music. But Brian has, has felt, you know, uh, an obligation to the Beach Boys forever. Um, he, essentially, he, he put Smile on the Shelf to save the Beach Boys. So, so there's a complicated psychology to all of it but that saturday night live uh, produced special 
was was disturbing because that was the kind of the first glimpse we got of the so-called Brian is back. And it was like, oh, boy, if this is Brian is back. Go back where you were because it was really unfortunate. Yeah, I kept waiting for it to become funny, uh, you know, the way they did on Saturday Night Live. And it, it just, you know, I just was very confused and upset about it. And so several years later when I realized, oh, that was the dude from the Beach Boys and, uh, you know, began to learn his story. But let's hear our first song. And then when, when we come back, I want to talk about the early days of the Beach Boys. And this is one of their very, very early tracks, one of their first albums. This is the Beach Boys, Farmer's Daughter. Beach Boys Farmer's Daughter. I want to say it's off their second album. I should have checked that, but this is a fun part of getting to do the show. I can pick obscure tracks that I have a random personal fondness for. And this is the kind of sound that made the Beach Boys famous. This mix of Chuck Berry and the four freshmen, the harmonies, these crazy jazz harmonies that Brian Wilson had studied closely on record and TV um, from a group we don't hear about much. <clears throat> I mean, the Four Freshmen is a group I really only heard about in the context of the Beach Boys for decades. It was only recently that I looked into them kind of uh, through other venues reading about the pop jazz scene in the 50s. A really unique blend of influences. And thing that struck me on rereading the book was how quickly they got famous. Can you quickly run through, and I kind of want to focus on his collaborators as we go through this. So kind of focus on Mike Love and then Murray Wilson, who is not a musical partner, but the business partner that Brian um, was involved with at the beginning of the Beach Boys. Um, so the, the four freshmen, uh, you know, the first time I heard the four freshmen was after I, I, I'd read that they were an influence on Brian. It was like, oh, he just stole their sound. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> it was like, oh, I thought he invented that sound. <laughs> but no, he, he, he was, shall we say, inspired by the four freshmen. Brian, as a musical collaborator, has proven that he can write great songs with anybody. Um, one of his earliest songs, his, his very earliest song was Surfer Girl, which he wrote all by himself. Um, he wrote a song, uh, "The Surfer Moon," for Bob and Sherry, and I think he wrote that with uh, with uh, with Bob Norberg. Uh, Mike Love wrote "Surfin'" in a lot of the early uh, "Surfin'" car songs. But right from the very beginning, there were people who came in and out of his life with whom he wrote great, great songs, like Gary Usher, like Roger Christian like Russ Teitelman, who was there for a New York minute, Tony Asher for Pet Sounds, Van Dyke Parks for Smile. And and the reason that Brian could write with anybody is that all he cared about was the feeling of the song. He would have an idea. He would sit at the piano and play until he got the feeling of the, of the song. And then he'd compose a melody and he'd, he'd come up with a title and, and an idea for it. And whoever his collaborator was would, would help him fill it out. Uh, in terms of Murray Wilson, his father, he, he wrote a song called Breakaway, which is maybe in my top 10 favorite Beach Boy singles. I mean, it's just, it was just bizarre that, that only months after Murray Wilson sold Brian's publishing, publishing out from under him, um, he, they collaborated on that record. And, and and for whatever reason, they decided not to put Murray's name on 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 the record. They they said it was Brian Wilson and Reggie Dunbar. But uh, <laughs> Murray was essential to every aspect of Brian's story. If we start with the the musical, music was omnipresent in the Wilson home. Murray, uh, Brian, the boy's mother, Audrey. Uh, Brian and, and a, at first reluctant Carl would have family sing-alongs on Saturday nights at, at the piano. Um, Murray recognized his son's talents. He, he built a music room for Brian. He bought him a tape, a reel-to-reel tape recorder. 
He took Brian to see the four freshmen. He 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 knew something was going on. Murray was a a failed songwriter, a failed music industry person. That's where he, he wanted to be. And so when the Beach Boys, they weren't even called the Beach Boys, uh, first came into being, Murray was the person who made it all happen. Now one of the strange things about all of this is. If you know, people are always comparing the Beatles and the Beach Boys. The Beatles worked five really hard years before they they were signed to EMI Records. The, the Beach Boys basically worked about five months before they had a hit record. Man. And I and I think that plays into the fact that that there was so much inner turmoil in the Beach Boys, whereas the Beatles were like four, if you think of a fist and you think of the, the four fingers making a fist and Brian Epstein is the thumb around them, protecting them from everything. Uh, nothing, nothing, they, it was an unshakable alliance. Um, the Beach Boys were a family business and Murray Wilson, who's the one who got him into the studio to record Surfing, a song I've never liked, uh, who got them their deal with Capitol Records, who was the man who said to the to the executives of Capitol, let us record on our own and we'll give you hits. So he was essential to the early years of the Beach Boys, but he was also a tyrant. By all accounts, he, he physically and emotionally and verbally abused his sons. And um, so that was kind of, you know, if we say the Beach Boys were music was Chuck Berry and, and the four freshmen, then, 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 you know, musically, then emotionally, the Beach Boys are Murray Wilson, and wow. and and all of the good and bad that that he brought to it, and um, you know, B- Brian was always off balance because of Murray. If if you watch the film Beautiful Dream, where he talks about how it wasn't even it wasn't until I he says I wasn't until I was in high school that I could walk you know, straight up, walk like a man because he was always off balance from, from, from his father's abuse. Brian will also tell you that Murray inspired him to be competitive. So it's, it's quite a mix. And so there's no simple answer to it. Yeah. I mean, Murray Wilson is such an ambivalent figure. I mean, he, like you said, he made it possible. He, he supported the music. He gave them, he instilled the love of music in the Wilson brothers he supported them business-wise as much as he was able. Later, like you said, he became this massive hindrance and sold Brian's publishing out from under him at the worst possible time, at the absolute bottom of the market uh, for Beach Boys material. And he's almost like an Onion article. There was an Onion you know, satirical piece about – you know, I'm going to inspire you to be a great artist, kid, with this horrific abuse I'm about to inflict on you. And that's kind of like <laughs> you got you to send me the Onion article. I want to. I, 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 you know, I probably read it. I probably I probably read it and forgot it. But uh, it, it's um, yeah. I mean, it's it, it would be funny if it weren't true. I mean, yeah. That's what makes great satire. Um, but but um, you know, I could. The, the, there's a lot of things that went right in Brian's life in terms of his musical career, but a lot of things that went wrong. And, and it starts with Murray and, and then this kind of instant fame that they didn't work for, that they weren't working towards. It wasn't like they said, let's, let's form a group and, and, and have hit records. They just made a record or, or wrote a song that, that, you know, it was like they won the the, the mega lottery, and, yeah. and 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 all the and they didn't even, they wanted to call themselves the Pendletones after the shirts they wore. Yeah, and it was only, it was only a record company executive who said, "No, that ain't gonna work," and and went through a bunch of names and finally came up with the Beach Boys. And all Dennis Wilson was 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 the Beach Boy. He was a real surfer. He was a real tough tough kid. But they weren't they weren't, you know, surfers. And and when we come back, we'll talk more about the the California myth aspect of this. But let's hear our next song. This is from the Beach Boys Today album. This is Please Let Me Wonder. This is one of the first indications that Brian was getting very ambitious as a composer and in the studio. This is Please Let Me Wonder. Please forgive me. 
And that was the Beach Boys, Please Let Me Wonder, from 1965, uh, from the album Beach Boys Today, which is really the first inkling that Brian Wilson had these massive ambitions. And this is before the Beatles' Rubber Soul has come out. And, you know, Brian later credited that album with inspiring his ambition to make an album that was good all the way through. But he'd already done it with Beach Boys Today. And, you know, one thing that struck me when I when I first read the book, the California myth aspect of it seemed very clear and seemed like the the focus of the book that the beach boys are the band that that um encapsulated or perfected the the california myth of you know sun and and surf and tans and fun 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 till daddy takes a t-bird away but on rereading it i really noticed that you're kind of you don't really go into that you kind of treat it as sort of an assumed thing that people are aware of. And I'll, also, I don't know if you're familiar, but the, the cartoonist Peter Bagg has an essay in defense of Mike Love and argues that Mike Love was kind of the architect, or at least the co-architect to that California myth. How do you see the Brian Wilson and the California myth now as, with all these years of retrospective? And how do you see Mike Love's role in that creation? Uh, before I answer that, I just have to say I, I love the Beach Boys today. Um, it, tip, if you were to ask me what's your favorite Beach Boys album, usually I'll say Beach Boys today. Um, and side two in particular, Please Let Me Wonder, is just magnificent. I actually created a, 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 a playlist uh, for, for an album I call When I Grow Up to Be a Man, which is a prequel to Pet Sounds. Because, uh, you know, Dale Brian was making Pet Sounds before he made Pet Sounds, as you said. Um, so this is a this is quite a, a, a complicated question. Um, when I came up with the title "The Beach Boys and the California Myth," um, that was to sell the publisher on the idea of my book. <laughs> because what had ha- what had happened was um, they the, this is a book packager named Delilah Communications. They they had done a book called Grow, uh, uh, "Growing Up with the Beatles," and. This, they, the sequel was going to be called Sand Tracks Growing Up with the Beach Boys, and it was going to be written by a, a Southern California writer. And I was hired as the researcher on this book. And then he sold the movie, and I figured, I'm gonna, okay, they want to do a book on the Beach Boys. I'm going to convince them to change the idea of the book from somebody who grew up in Southern California with the Beach Boys as the backdrop to somebody who moved to California because of the Beach Boys. And in my two and a half letter pitch to them, I came up with this title, The Beach Boys and the California Myth, and they went for it. And I wrote the book and I submitted the book. And the book began with, there was no section called The California Myth. It just began with the biography. And they wrote back to me and said, we like what you've written, but where's the California Myth part? (laughs) <laughs> and so it it's kind of an add-on uh, if you can add on in the front of something and you know the truth is in 19, you know when i was 11 years old and i heard surf in usa and, and surf city that was to me the california myth the ju- this juvenile notion that there was a place where there were two girls for every boy and i i had crushes on girls i couldn't get a date uh, but two girls for every boy. I want to go there, and, and that's pretty—that's pretty much what it was. It really should have been called the Beach Boys and the and the and the myth and the Smile Myth, because that would have been you know more to the point of of, of the inspiration from the book and what the book was focusing on. Um, so I didn't have much to say about the California Myth. The California Myth was really created in the '60s by Beach Boys songs some of which Mike co-wrote, some of which were co-written by, uh, you know, Jan and Dean, and then some of which were, were, were you know, hits by Jan and Dean and, 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 and Roger Christian and others. Uh, Gary Usher wrote 409. So the, 
the surf car thing had its had 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 a number of authors. I mean, Brian's the one who wrote Surfer Girl. You know, Surfing USA is there's a Chuck Berry song with with added on lyrics, and you know, Brian asks his girlfriend's brother, who was a surfer, you know, give me the names of all of the, the hot surfing spots. Brian's the one who came up with Surf City. So, um, you know, it, it, Brian's really the, the you know, if, if all that had happened was surfing and surfing safari, it wasn't going anywhere. It was just going to be a local phenomenon. Surfing USA and Surf City is what took it national. But what really created the visualization of it wasn't the Beach Boys in striped shirts. It was the Frankie and Annette movies, the beach movies that, that, that people saw. These really cheesy films. Yeah, Frankie Avalon and Annette Finucci. Frankie Avalon, exactly. So in terms of, 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 of Mike Love, Mike Love is obviously a significant figure in this story. But if, if he hadn't been related to, to Brian, um, it, it, he wouldn't have been part of the story. There, there wouldn't have been a Beach Boys, probably. There would have been Brian Wilson trying to be a, a songwriter um, in, in the music business um, because no one else had serious musical ambition. Certainly Dennis didn't. Carl was, was, you know, was playing guitar with, with his neighborhood pal, David Marks, and they were playing you know, surf music in, in, its, in its real sense. doesn't have vocals. So that was that was the innovation that, that you know that Brian and the Beach Boys came up with that, that Jan and Dean followed in, in behind and 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 you know M- Mike Love is the one who's kept the Beach Boys going all these years touring. One can argue whether that's good or bad the way it's it's been done. You know if you compare it say to the the Stones who tour what once every five years and it's always a big deal. The Beach Boys are always on tour. And so they're kind of they're they're kind of um, out there and available, and 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 scarcity creates you know excitement and demand versus you know not being uh, around. You know Bruce Springsteen's going to go on tour next year, and, and despite all the hubbub about ticket prices, people are going to be paying a lot of money to see him because he hasn't toured with the East Street Band in such a long time. Uh, you know, McCartney, you know, toured in what, 2019, and then he came back three years later and, you know, selling out stadiums everywhere. Elton John, my God, he sold out three nights at Dodger Stadium. So that, that's kind of the opposite of what I was just saying about the Beach Boys. Elton's been touring forever. Um, but, you know, Mike is, is okay, you can call, call him the co-architect of, 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 of the California myth, if you want. Call him the co-architect of the Beach Boys, but I, I would argue that the building that matters, if we're talking about Beach Boys buildings, if we, if we look at it as a housing development, those early houses were relatively primitive. Um, the, the ones that matter to me are the ones that Brian built primarily on his own using studio musicians, using different lyricists like Tony Asher and Van Dyke Parks, writing songs on, on his own. And that's, to me, the music that, that, that matters. So the California myth part of the story, as I said, was just my book package of saying, hey, I thought you were going to write about that. Um, even in the, you know, this edition, you know, God only knows the story of Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys, and the California myth. The California myth comes way at the end Although in, in the updated material, I do talk about the California myth probably more extensively than I did in the original book. Uh, California is quite a myth. Every aspect of California is both mythological, and now that I've lived here since 75, it's actually not a myth. It's actually true. You can, you, you, you can live that life. It's, it's there. Absolutely. And let's hear a break from our sponsors. When we come back, let's talk about the peak period of Brian Wilson when he was making Pet Sounds and the Aborted Smile Project. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
Go to your happy price, Priceline. So one key development that we haven't mentioned yet is that in 1964, Brian Wilson has a nervous breakdown and refuses to board a plane with the Beach Boys. And because he's the singer, songwriter and producer of their records already, they fired Murray Wilson and, and you know, Brian has shown this very precocious ability to, to, to produce sessions and write songs. That's the new deal is that they, you know, they, they hire first Glenn Campbell as a temporary replacement and then Bruce Johnston as the permanent replacement for the road beach boys. And Brian stays home and stays in the studio and makes records at first. It pretty much goes according to the plan or the agreement. I think that he had with Mike Love and Murray and the others and, and produce tracks like California girls that are very much in the beach boys brand and, and, and yet musically sophisticated and very successful hits but his ambitions keep growing. He's working with a crew of session musicians that have posthumously been, or you know, post facto been renamed the Wrecking Crew and become quite famous in their own right and well-deserved musicians like Carol Kay and Hal Blaine and this uh, team around um, the LA studio system that basically Phil Spector had put together and people like Brian Wilson and Sonny Bono and Jack Nietzsche and others were quick to, to grab onto. And, it's, and, and Brian, ambition grows and grows. He, he finds this guy, Tony Asher, and creates this, at the time, flop album called Pet Sounds. Tell us about Pet Sounds, Tony Asher's role, and and kind of how that threw off the balance of the Beach Boys-Brian Wilson relationship. Um, so let's, let's first of all look at one at a time. Um, but by the way, Brian didn't refuse to get on the plane. He had the nervous breakdown on the plane. That's right. Um, um, but otherwise, your 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 recounting of that era is 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 stunningly sharp and concise. Well, thank um, you. You're, you're welcome. I'm glad I don't have to tell the story. You tell it very well. <laughs> um, so so Brian hears Rubber Soul. Um, and I'm quite convinced it was the American version of Rubber Soul. Yeah, it absolutely is. Go ahead. It, it, it has to be because the tra- he's, for the track listing, for everything to sound the same, it it can't begin with "and your bird can sing." I mean, just you know, so it's got it's got it can't have. It, 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 I drive my car right. I'm sorry, and and it can't have what what goes on. I mean, it, it just wouldn't it wouldn't have had the same impact. So he says, I want to make an album where everything sounds the same. As, as you said earlier, ignoring the fact he'd already done that on side two of, of today and, and, and summer days and summer nights, there's a really consistent sound to it as well, which he follows through with on the little girl I once knew single, which which kind of is an orphan and should have been on, on Pet Sounds. Um, at, at any rate, so he decides, uh, he says, you know, quoting quoting Marilyn on Brian, Brian, Brian's first wife, you know, Marilyn, I'm going to make the greatest album ever. Um, it's just stunning that he would think of that. That he would not just think of it, that he would say it and then do it. Um, so he needs somebody to express emotions and feelings. He needs as a as a as a, as a songwriting partner. And um, he he thinks of Tony Asher, who he met once, maybe twice or hanging around the studios and he calls Tony and Tony was stunned to get the phone call and they, and they were a great collaboration. And, and, and it wasn't just a words and music collaboration. Tony, Tony, as he told me, contributed some, sometimes to the music and Brian contributed sometimes to the words. Um, you, you, you refer to pet sounds uh, as a flop album. So let's, let's talk about that for a moment. My understanding is that, Capitol Records essentially made it a flop, flop album because you have Wouldn't It Be Nice, which was a big hit single on it. You have got you have Sloop John B, which is a, a top five single. You have God Only Knows, which was a top uh, 40 single. And uh, Caroline No, which is a Brian Wilson solo single, which also was a, a bit of a hit. So you've got essentially four hit singles, or four, four songs that are hits on the album. And what happens is, according to what I've been told, is that when record stores sell out of Pet Sounds and reorder the album, what shows up is something called Best of the Beach Boys. 
And what does that mean? Well, record companies who who have always been, with a few exceptions, certainly uh, you know Warner Brothers in the '70s and A and M Records and others, uh, record companies only cared about making a dollar. And it's like, okay, you're going to make albums like Pet Sounds. You're no longer the Beach Boys in our sales image. So we're going to do a best of the Beach Boys album. And, 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 and that usually signals the end of a career. You're done. And, and so anyway, that happens, you know, in, that, that's a retail question. In terms of what the album is, so, so I, I refer to it as his, as Brian Wilson's emotional autobiography. It really should have been a Brian Wilson solo album. Um, there are two instrumentals. There are two songs on it that that Brian sings solo with no backing. God only knows has Carl, Brian, and Bruce. So five of the tracks don't even have the Beach Boys on them. I think I just wasn't made for these times might be all Brian doubling and tripling the vocals. Um, so he, he made that kind of on his own. What did it mean to the internal dynamic of the beach boys? Well, it, it created, um, you know, what you referred to earlier when you said Brian was producing songs like California girls, um, he was, you know, and help me Rhonda. So each album might have um, a song like "Please Let Me Wonder," but there would also be something that the, that the that the crowd could go for. That could be a single. And uh, while "Wouldn't It Be Nice" is a big hit single from Pet Sounds, um, as as I was told, and I interviewed for the original edition of the book, you know, you know a lot of people who were around the studio, especially Chuck Britz. When I did the Pet Sound Sessions box set in 96, working with Brian on that, I interviewed everyone who was still alive, including, uh, you know, I had an extensive interview with Paul McCartney I'd done. I interviewed Sir George Martin. Um, what you have is people just staggered by what, he's a, what, what Brian Wilson is able to do as, as a composer, arranger, and producer on this record. It has nothing to do with the Beach Boys image. And... So the, the, the split starts to happen, and you, you referred earlier to the In Defense of Mike Love article. So In Defense of Mike Love, he's hearing these songs and, and thinking, um, how are we going to play these songs on stage? Not, not technically, but what's our audience going to think? Our, our, I think our audience wants to hear you know, fun, 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 and I get around and, and surf in USA. Do they want to hear these songs? And I'll give him the benefit of the doubt that that's what he was thinking because, uh, you know, from what Chuck Britz and others told me, there was a lot of tension in the studio. And that tension seemed to resurface when I did the Pet Sound Sessions box set because it was held up for over a year. It was supposed to come out for the 30th anniversary of Pet Sound, and it didn't come out till well past uh, that anniversary in 97. And with, uh, unchanged, except for the addition of an essay by Mike Love. Uh, so, so I'm not sure what, what the problem was. Um, John Lennon was asked, or Circa Revolver, are, are you afraid you're going to lose your fans? And he said, we may lose some of our old fans, but we'll get some new fans. Um, the Beach Boys were stuck in 1965. They, they weren't looking to make, they didn't think they were going to make new fans. They thought they wanted to hold on to the fans they had. And so Pet Sounds did not fit that to them. Um, I have to admit, the first time I heard Pet Sounds, I didn't get it. I, I had heard... Uh, I, I, I just I didn't understand why people were going crazy for it. As I said, Beach Boys Today was my favorite because it was a good combination of up tempo and ballad, and 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 the melancholy of Pet Sounds, the sadness of it. I just wasn't made for these times. I mean, don't talk. Put your head on on, on my shoulders. One of the most beautiful ballads Brian's ever written. 
but it certainly was. It didn't sound like a Beach Boys song. It sounded like a Linda Ronstadt song. Uh, so, so, and nobody knew it, who she it, was yet. So, and, and no, well, it, there was no it, reference point to it. I need to jump it, in and introduce our next song before Stephanie gets mad at me. This is a breakaway. This is the collaboration between Brian Wilson and his father Murray that you mentioned earlier. That was Breakaway, a 1969 single collaboration between Brian Wilson and his father, Murray. And we're a little ahead of the story now with that track, but you're talking about Pet Sounds. And yeah, that that initially threw me off. I got it when I was about 18, and I was a devoted student of Dave Marsh's Rolling Stone record guide from 1982 and felt obliged to like Pet Sounds. And even though I think they only <laughs> gave it four stars in that, which is pretty embarrassing in retrospect, but it took me a while, but eventually, you know, when I was 18 or 19, that song really captures the uncertainty of young adulthood, that album, in a way that I don't know any other piece of art that captures that. And and it, you know, has only grown in appeal and significance. But the thing that really threw me off was the orchestration and arrangements. I'm kind of an arrangements guy. With hip-hop, I pay attention to the DJ. You know, I was a guitar player and a bass player in bands. I, I, I tend to pay attention to how things are arranged. And this was so far over my head, I could not figure out what the heck was going on. And, you know, then you read the the credits and you see the documentaries and it's bass clarinets and giant harmonicas and all this crazy stuff and and it's presaging what the Beatles would do where they would try to electronically treat their pianos to sound like guitars and guitars to sound like pianos so it's this incredibly ahead of its time and eccentric thing and yeah and you have to wonder what the what is because you know Capitol Records was infamous for turning down the Beatles for a full year. And then when they did put them out, you know, slapping fake stereo on them and chopping the records up to the point that the Beatles, you know, put out a butch, uh, an album cover of them, uh, posted with <laughs> chopped meat, the butcher and butcher cover, baby yeah. dolls. Yeah. The butcher cover. Cause they felt that Dave Dexter and these other crew cutted capital executives were butchering their babies. And you have to wonder, I mean, Warner brothers didn't exist as such yet. Warner brothers records, the Mo, the label Mo Austin would put together in the late sixties. But, you know, if Brian Wilson had been working with somebody like Mo Austin, Lenny Warnerker, and those other people who were sympathetic and trying to build artists, you can envision a totally different history wherein Brian becomes more than the George Gershwin of the 60s, you know, but the Beethoven of the 60s and could have had a whole, you know, career of producing American, you know, a new kind of American classical music. But that's not what happened. Instead, we get the Smile Project. Tell us about Van Dyke Parks, where Brian was at in his life, and how he was able to press ahead and get even more ambitious um, after Pet Sounds had been pretty painful. He was disappointed by the reception, and like you say, probably was record company sabotage, because I've also always wondered, how did an album with that many hit singles get a reputation as a flop? But he presses ahead, and... You know, he's discovered LSD and he's hanging with this very sophisticated crowd of, of people in L.A. What happened and what was he going for and why didn't the album ever come out? Um, wow. Well, one could write a book about that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, it's, it's, you know, I've got two entire chapters in the original 78 edition about the book and then a, a chapter about the... The, the the reclamation project, if you will, the, the, of Brian Wilson presents Smile uh, in in the new edition. It's a really complicated story, um, but Brian realizes that I mean nothing's going to hold him back. And and you know think about how smart he is. He writes a song called Good 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 Vibrations during the Pet Sound sessions with Tony Escher, and he says he says to himself you know what, I'm going to put that aside because I have another idea for what I want to do with that. And my goodness, um, he finishes Pet Sounds, and yes, he was disappointed by the, by the sales, 
But he was surrounded by people cheering him on um, in the music, uh, in, in the L.A. music culture, if you will. And he starts to meet all of these incredibly hip people, people like Danny Hutton and David Anderley and Van Dyke Parks and, and, and Michael Vossi. And they are, um, you know, what you, what you referred to, imagine if he, he had been working for, for Mo and Lenny at that point. They're his, they're his cheerleading squad. There are no limits, Brian, on what you're going to do. And he embarks on this project called Smile. Now, what, so, so how, does it, how does it fall apart? Because when, you, when one listens to the songs that he was writing, uh, Surf's Up, Wonderful, um, etc., it, it, you, you'd obviously have to be deaf not to hear how beautiful these songs are. Um, my favorite quote in 1966 from Dennis Wilson is when the Beach Boys are on tour in England, he, he says to a reporter, smile, and, and, and Pet Sounds, of course, was received rapturously in England thanks to the publicity work of, of Derek Taylor. That's where the whole Brian Wilson is a genius uh, campaign started. Um, but Dennis says to a reporter, smile is so good it makes Pet Sounds stink. In, in, in 2004, when Brian's first tour of England, the Brian Wilson Presents Smile Tour, was over, I was at his house interviewing him. Uh, I'm not sure why I was there, but you can see this on YouTube. There's a, there's a link to, the, to my film, Beautiful Dreamer, that looks like it's a two-hour link. And if you go to the end of credits, you'll see an interview with me talking to Brian. And... I asked Brian about Pet Sounds and Smile, and he says, uh, on a scale of one to ten, I'd give Pet Sounds a three and Smile a ten. Wow. It, it, it was like, oh, my God. And it's like, you, you know, in follow-up conversations, you'd be like, well, why? And you go, because it's happy music, David. <laughs> you recognize that, you know, he had kind of like gotten it out of his chest with Pet Sounds, and he believed that laughter, I mean, he believed that old soul laughter is, 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 the, is the best medicine, and he wanted to make musical laughter. So he, he wanted, he was, look, he was a broken person, probably from the time his father first hit him and yelled at him. But, but uh, you know, and then taking drugs didn't help, and the eternal strife with the Beach Boys didn't help, and, and the issues with Capitol Records, you know, you add that stew together, but nothing was going to stop him from making smile until it did until he put it aside. And, 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 you know, from 1967, when he shelved it till 2004, the question was always why. And when I asked him that question, when I interviewed him for beautiful dreamer, he answered me in, in a way that felt like, okay, David, if I answer you, is this the last time I have to answer this question? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, people stop asking me because he says, I'll tell you from my heart. There were four reasons why I stopped working on smile. And he lists the four reasons. And, and reason number four was Mike Love didn't like it. So if, if Mike Love is, is in, in, in the article you quoted, the co-architect uh, of, of the Beach Boys, then, then he also is, He's the iceberg in the, in the Titanic of Smile, um, or one of the icebergs anyway. Brian, Brian, Brian believed that the music was too far ahead of its time. Well, why would he believe that given what was happening in, in contemporary music? There was a lot going on that was out there already. I mean, if you listen to, to Revolver, particularly the last song on Revolver, <laughs> You know, the people were doing. You, you talked about the Beatles studio experiments. They they were doing it electronically. What Brian was doing organically, naturally. So there's a, there's a genius to that as well. And he stopped, and and you know it created a lifetime of what ifs for him, which fortunately um, he was able to answer. Uh, in the last 35 years, and 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 that's what really inspired the update of this book 
which um, for those of you who may have the original edition, the update is more than half the length of the original book. It's a, it's, it, it, there's a lot that's happened since the, the 1985 update, and I really wanted to celebrate it. I didn't want to uh, do a critical analysis of it. I wanted to give the reader kind of a behind-the-scenes, fly-on-the-wall story of what was happening in Brian's life as he as there was this personal redemption and creative renaissance, which included him uh, completing Smile. And let's go Is that the hear... question you asked me? <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that works. That gets us through the Smile period. And let's hear our last song. This is uh, Tell I Die, which you mentioned before from the later period of the Beach Boys, the post-Smile period. This is Brian Wilson's Tell I Die. And that was Brian Wilson doing Till I Die uh, from the Surf's Up album, 1971 or 72. And and the last two things I want to get out of you before we close is a little bit about this period from Smiley Smile up through Surf's Up or maybe a little after that, this period when Brian is still producing and still writing songs. They're recording albums in his house, but he's kind of slowly, gradually letting the reins go. And his brother Dennis emerges as a creative force and a powerful songwriter. Carl uh, Wilson also emerges as a creative force. Even Bruce Johnson uh, emerges as a pretty um, potent songwriter and singer. What's your take now on that era? Because it's it's also been upgraded. It was ignored and and disparaged at the time when those albums were coming out but it seems like the millennial generation in particular has adopted that that era of beach boy stuff how do you see it now well it's up and down i mean smiley smile there's no you know i shouldn't say there's no way but how do you listen to smiley smile and not be disappointed once you've heard smile and and realize you know at the time i think Carl, what did Carl Wilson say? Smiley Smile is a bunt instead of a grand slam. Yeah. Um, uh, somebody else, might have been Carl, referred to it as a half, half-baked piece of shit. Um, it's, it's, you know, if you take it on its own, not knowing nothing about Smile, it, yeah, it's fun. But it's, it's like, okay, wait a second. We just had pet sounds. We've had these two singles, Good Vibrations and Heroes and Villains, which are ambitious beyond belief. And now we have Little Pad and songs like that. So it's, 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 it's disappointing. Um, the follow-up to that, um, Wild Honey, sounds to me like the demos for a record. Um, you know, that Brian could have made a great record, but he wasn't interested in producing a great record at that point. He just, it was like, okay, we, we got an album due. Let me write a bunch of songs. Here it is. Um, Friends is the one that Brian has the most um, positive feeling towards. That was his favorite album of the 60s that the group did. This is, there's something about the vibe, but what is, what is Brian's main song on the album? Busy Doing Nothing. Yep. Now there's also there's also a piece called Diamond Head, which is which is brilliantly uh, you know psychedelic instrumental. So so Brian's gifts were there. He just no longer was willing and or able to to utilize them on on a full time basis. And I think part of that had to do with what happened with with him and Redwood when the Beach Boys, uh, Redwood, which the group, the vocal group that became Three Dog Night, when, when, when the Beach Boys showed up at the studio and said, you can't work with them, you're either going to work with us or you're going to work with nobody. And I think Brian Wilson was like, okay, I guess I'm going to work with nobody. <laughs> and, and, but he couldn't help himself. I mean, he's an artist and the stuff is still pouring out. The songs are still coming out. And, and you listen to him on, on 2020, Time to Get Alone. 
I mean, you know, what a brilliant piece that is. You listen to this whole world. You listen to Till I Die. Till I Die is one of the saddest songs ever written. Um, to give you an idea what a smart aleck I am at, at a rehearsal of, of Brian and his band when they were adding that to the to, to the uh, to the live list, I went over to him after rehearsal and I said, "I'm that leaf on a windy day," and and he just shook his head at me like, "Get a don't be stupid." Um, Carl and the Passions after after Sunflower and Surfs Up, Carl and the Passions was a big disappointment. I uh, you know it had two great Dennis Wilson songs and a couple you know you need a mess of help to stand alone. So again, a great Brian Wilson piece sung beautifully by Carl. But as an album, it was incoherent. And then comes Holland, which, what the heck are the Beach Boys doing in Holland? There's a whole story behind that. And Sail on Sailor, which to me is really the last great Beach Boys single. So I can understand. And, and then the fairy tale, my God, these snippets of magical music that sound like they could, could have been on Smile. But again, they're just snippets. So there was, there was kind of, uh, you know, I'll, I'll use a terrible analogy. It's like, you have a, this crush on this girl, and she's teasing you. And that's what the Beach Boys felt like through that era. They were teasing us that they could be great. Sunflower is, un, is unquestionably great. Surf's Up is intermittently great, um, as, as was Holland. Um, but it was, it was a disappointing time if you were living through it. Retrospectively, it was the last great Beach Boys era. Yeah, it was it was I was late to the party with those albums, but I have put in the time and there's a lot of treats and a lot of delights on those records. And I think in the 90s and early 2000s in the lo-fi indie rock era, they really fit in. And an album like Smiley Smile could be seen for what it was and appreciated as this lo-fi like a bunt. Uh, sometimes you just bunt and want to get on first base and, and you're not swinging for the fences and uh, taken away from the context of disappointment. You know, now that we have Smile and the re-release Smile sessions, um, you know, we can enjoy that album and think what might have been, and and get a pretty full concept of what what it would have sounded like. It's still never going to be what it would have been had they put it out in 1967, but now you can see the way it fits together and and it makes sense, and you can see this amazing vision of Americana and telling this story from Plymouth Rock to Hawaii and this American settlement. And now you're free to appreciate this later stuff. And we only have a little bit of time left, but I have to introduce the final villain in the Brian Wilson story. And this is Dr. Landy. Um, oh, dear. <laughs> do, you do, 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 do you have to? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I guess you have to. Okay, yeah, right. and especially because you actually played a role in helping free Brian from Dr. Landy. Tell us about Dr. Landy, how he came to have literal 24-7 control over Brian Wilson's life in two separate periods, but cumulatively about a decade of Brian's life is under this control of this out-of-control psychiatrist who's issuing drugs and taking co-writer credit on songs and, and I think even produced or co-produced the Brian Wilson album in the 80s. How did Dr. Landy get that kind of control over Brian and how did Brian get free? Um, so he, uh, I hate to use the word doctor in front of his name, so we'll just call him Landy. So he was first hired in, in, in 1975 because Brian was in terrible shape. Um, he needed help. Why with all of the qualified physicians in Los Angeles, he was the one who was chosen is, is, a, is, a, is a question for another day, I think. Um, he was famous for getting results with celebrities. What was bizarre about his first tenure, which lasted about a year, was, what, was that the Beach Boys fired him because he was getting too involved in Beach Boys business. So if the, if the question was, if, if Dr. Lindy was hired to get Brian well, why was it the Beach Boys could fire him? So we'll put that aside. The next time he came back in, in, in late 82, the, Brian was, was, was heading towards death. I remember seeing him in the fall of 82 and, and, and it was just, it was heartbreaking. And, and a couple of weeks later, he was brought back hired by the beach boys to keep Brian Wilson alive. Um, in part, because, you know, th there's a sentence in the first edition of the first book, which pisses off a lot of people, but, but it was as clear as I could say it, it gets complicated 
there's the family's love of Brian, and then there's the family's love of fame and fortune. And Brian Wilson is the golden goose. And you have to keep the golden goose alive if you want to have record deals. And so the Beach Boys hired Landy a second time. Landy, having been through volume one, the second time said, okay, you want me to come back and perform miracles? I need total control. And it took endless effort and endless legal battles before he was finally freed. And, and Brian, and looking back, when asked what it was like, said it was like I was in prison for nine years. And I have a chapter in the update about it because I could obviously couldn't ignore it. And, and, and I was there when it was happening. And it was it was it was very, very strange. And, and what I wrote gets at the tip of the iceberg. It's some, somebody else can come along and write a book about those years because it, 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 it's it, you know, to write it, write everything about it is is, is too depressing. Yeah, it's brutal stuff. And and let me let me just say one other thing. Go ahead. If if, it, if Dr. Landy hadn't come along, two, two things wouldn't have happened. But three things wouldn't have happened. He wouldn't have saved Brian's life. He's the one who insisted that Brian date Melinda, his Brian's second wife, who was instrumental in saving Brian. And Landy was the one who figured out a, a Brian Wilson's solo career, and he had the strength to stand up to the Beach Boys organization and make it happen. So in the midst of all of that madness, three very positive things happened. Yeah, and that's a recurring theme of this story. It's these figures like Murray Wilson and Mike Love and Eugene Landy who give Brian essential support, and all of them played a role in bringing Brian Wilson's gifts to the public and shaping him, and the story wouldn't be possible without him. And it really makes you think about the nature of this reality and this flawed universe that you can't separate <laughs> um, you know, the good and the bad. If, if Murray hadn't been who he was and what he was, Brian wouldn't have had that pain to express. And, and if Murray hadn't been so yeah. driven, you know, Brian, driven by his lack of talent and failures and, and his sensitivity. This is a man who loved music and he could hear what kind of gifts his sons had and, you know, worked tirelessly to bring them forth. So it's an odd note to end a Brian Wilson show on, but thank you, Murray Wilson and Mike Love and uh, Dr. Landy, because I, for one, am grateful for the music we've got. And you can, you know, you, you, I was listening to the Smile Sessions last night. And it's just incredible. You can hear, you know, the comedy sketches they were doing, these choral parts that he could only do with an instrument like the Beach Boys. And, you know, th that as beautiful as the 2004 Smile album is, he's not in the voice he was in in 1967. And he doesn't have Carl's beautiful voice to call on. He doesn't have Dennis's hoarse rasp to call on. He doesn't have Bruce Johnson, et cetera. And even Mike Love, you know, contributes uniquely a thing. So, you know, I'm just grateful to be on the same planet where we can hear this incredible music. And and I'm grateful to you, David, for the book you wrote and your role in, in the story and your role in helping Brian achieve his happy ending and bring this music to life. My guest has been David Leaf. The book is God Only Knows, the story of Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys, and the California Myth, which is available in a new and dramatically expanded edition that I really think replaces the edition and highly recommend it to everyone. So, David, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Nate. You really know your stuff. This was a great hour. I, I, I could talk. I could listen to you for hours. <laughs> and likewise. <laughs> Thank you, David. Thank you. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Thursday, Nate welcomes back John Anderson to talk Neil Young, Stephen Stills, and the Buffalo Springfield. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 